0: Hello everybody, this is Queer Voices, a home-produced podcast that has grown out of a radio show that's been on the air in Houston, Texas, for several decades. This week, Andrew Edmondson talks with Michael Buning, Director of Performing Arts and Culture at Asia Society Texas, about the film This Is Not Me, which is a portrait of two trans teenagers coming of age in Iran.
1: It's a documentary, it's directed by Saeed Golipour. It follows Shervin and Saman, who are two young trans men, as they're living their daily lives in Iran. As kind of follows them as they are pursuing gender realignment surgery and procedures that are available to them. What I think is also just really special is seeing the nuances of their daily lives.
0: It's part of the 30th annual Festival of Films from Iran, taking place at venues across Houston. Then we devote the rest of the show to Houston native and America's Got Talent winner, Christina Wells, in conversation with Deborah Montcrief Bell. Christina is currently performing on tour with the musical Chicago, and they're in Houston right now for a limited run. Christina talks about her origins, about how she got into Broadway, and the lessons in positivity that she has learned along the way.
2: I think the biggest one ever is say yes to yourself. Like, I think we want everyone else to say yes to us. And I think social media is a perfect example of that. I'm going to post a picture. I don't know if I look good, but maybe other people will think I look good. Hopefully they'll like it and that will make me think I look good. No, no, no.
3: Can't do that.
0: Queer Voices starts now. You
3: are listening to Queer Voices and I am Andrew Edmondson. The 30th annual Festival of Films from Iran will take place at venues across Houston from January 21st through February 5th. This landmark edition of the film festival includes a timely focus on the experiences of women in Iran. One of the most intriguing films of the festival is the documentary entitled This Is Not Me, which is a powerful portrait of two transgender youth coming of age in contemporary Iran. This Is Not Me will screen at Asia Society, Texas on Wednesday evening, January 25th at 7 p.m. To discuss the 30th Annual Festival of Films from Iran, we are pleased to welcome Michael Booning to Queer Voices. Michael is Director of Performing Arts and Culture at Asia Society, Texas. Michael, welcome to Queer Voices. Thank you. We're glad to be here and thank you for having us. So give us a broad-brush overview of the Festival of Films from Iran and what
1: audiences can expect this year. As you mentioned, this is the 30th year of the Festival of Films from Iran. Uh, We're very excited about it. It's a special year and a really special focus. This timely response to the women, Life Freedom Movement that's taking place right now, with films focusing on political activism and experiences of women in Iran. Some highlights include the opening night of a very special appearance by the legendary actress Shoray Aghdashloo. She will present her feature film debut from 1976, Chess of the Wind. Many people probably have seen her and know her. She's appeared in a lot of different movies, including many movies here in the U.S. She was nominated for an Academy Award with The House of Sand and Fog a few years ago. We also have Some other films that are going to be screened are No Bears, which is the latest film by the director Jafar Panahi. And then there will be some additional films of his screened at Rice Cinema. There's some films by some emerging filmmakers, Destiny and The Apple Day at MFAH. And of course, we are very excited to be screening the documentary This Is Not Me at Asia Society.
3: And I was reading in the New York Times, their film critics were selecting films that should be nominated for Best Picture, and the film that you mentioned, No Bears, was one selection that they spotlit. I'm excited that we'll get to see that mm-hmm. acclaimed film here in Houston. But tell us about the documentary, This Is Not Me.
1: It's a documentary. It's directed by Saeed Golapur. It follows Shervin and Saman, who are two young trans men as they're living their daily lives in Iran. as. Kind of follows them as they are pursuing a gender realignment surgery and procedures that are available to them. What I think is also just really special is seeing the nuances of their daily lives, seeing their struggles, seeing their very supportive and loving relationships with their family and friends, and just seeing their fierce determination to live their life as they truly are.
3: What I did not know is that Iran is the only country in that West Asian region to recognize trans people. The other LGBTQ identity is banned. It would seem to be a surprising benefit in a country dominated by rigid gender roles. But the two protagonists in the film face intense challenges in Iranian society. Talk about some of those challenges that are dramatized in the film.
1: It was certainly a surprise to me personally as well that changing your gender in Iran is legal when there are so many other things. Homosexuality is illegal. and There are no legal support for civil rights for the gay community in Iran legally. And actually, homosexuality activity between men can be punishable by death in Iran legally. And I don't know all the kind of nuances of that history and why the changing gender is legal in Iran. In the particular areas of that, you do see in the film that, though that is the case, that there are definitely the process of getting surgery is not straightforward. There are bureaucratic hurdles to getting the approval to do so. One of the people in the film looks into opportunities to go to Europe instead of that. So there are definitely the struggles within society, the pressures that they face. We particularly see that with Shervin and Saman with their school. They're required to wear headscarves, even though they don't uh, identify as women. It's something that really frustrates them, and you see that throughout the film. Following the film, there will be a post-screening discussion with Shervin and Saman and the director. They will be joining in via Zoom, and I think that will be a great opportunity to speak with them and learn a little bit more about their, their situation in Iran.
3: And you've also enlisted some people from the trans and non-binary community in Houston to participate in events. Can you talk about that?
1: So that discussion that we'll be following, it will be moderated by Joel S. Butte and Ian Haddock from the Normal Anomaly Initiative here in Houston. So we're really excited and thrilled to have them be a part of this and to be leading this conversation. Um, It was really important to us um, that this discussion illuminate not only the experiences of Shervin and Saman in For them to be able to tell their stories but also to facilitate this kind of cross-cultural dialogue between our community here in houston uh, particularly the transgender community and the people the artists who made this film and took part in in making this film Um, and hopefully it gives an opportunity for people to share their experiences and stories
3: and if you've just joined us we are speaking about the new documentary film from iran this is not me which offers a powerful chronicle of two transgender youth coming of age in contemporary Iran. It is part of the 30th Annual Festival of Films from Iran, which will take place at venues across Houston from January 21st through February 5th. Michael, switching topics slightly, I love Asia Society, Texas. I'm actually a member of your organization. For Mm -hmm. those who haven't visited your gorgeous museum, can you talk about the history of Asia Society, Texas, its mission, and some of the key programs that you offer for the Bayou City?
1: This kind of what I was just talking about with that dialogue, I think, really builds into what our mission is with Asia Society, and that is to build multicultural bridges of understanding between Asia and the West. And we really believe in the strength and beauty of diverse perspectives, the power of art, dialogue, and ideas to build friendships, better understand one another, and combat bias, and build a more inclusive society. Asia Society is actually part of a global organization. There's 13 centers throughout around the world. Texas Center was established in 1979. And our building opened uh, 10 years ago in 2012. We're on Southmore Boulevard in the museum district. Uh, It's a beautiful building. If you haven't been here already, if any of your listeners haven't, I definitely encourage uh, them just to visit for that alone. It was designed by Japanese architect Yoshio Tanaguchi. It's really an architectural landmark for Houston. Um, We have a great cafe there as well, too. Um, But our programming inside the building focuses on four key areas, of art, education, performing arts and culture, and business and policy. We do all sorts of different programs for all ages. We do present world-class exhibitions. We do talks with leaders and influencers from, you can include just in the past year, Indra Nui, uh, Michelle Zahner of Japanese Breakfast. We do uh, dance, music, theater performances with both local, national, and global talent. We do classes and summer camps, and we do uh, food programs that are a lot of fun and big festivals like our annual Night Market and Asia Fest.
3: So looking ahead in the next few months, I know you have a very vibrant schedule of films, concerts, and performances. Maybe highlight three or four events that you think might be of interest to our
1: audience. Coming up, I just mentioned our festivals, our annual Lunar New Year festivals on January 28th. It's a big fun event with performances, dance and music, food, a lion dance, Um, On February 2nd, we have a women's leadership series. And the next talk in that series will be on Asian American women in law. Um, In just a couple of weeks, we will have a big exhibition opening of works by contemporary Chinese artists. And then something I'm super excited about at the end of March, on March 24th and 25th, uh, we will be presenting the world premiere of a new ballet by now Kuzizaki of the Houston Ballet called Genji. Uh, It was commissioned by us. It's a contemporary take on the classic Japanese novel, Tale of Genji, It's going to be beautiful um, with uh, dancers from the Houston Ballet.
3: Thank you, Michael, so much for making time to talk to us. We have been discussing the 30th annual Festival of Films from Iran, which will screen across Houston from January 21st through February 5th. Venues include the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, Asia Society Texas, and Rice Cinema. The documentary, This Is Not Me, screens Wednesday, January 25th at 7 p.m. at Asia Society, Texas, which is located at 1370 Southmore Boulevard in the Museum District. For more information about This Is Not Me, you can visit asiasociety.org
0: forward slash Texas. This is Queer Voices.
4: This is Deborah Moncrief Bell. And. I'm trying not to go all fangirl here, because I have the delight of speaking with my favorite diva, Christina Wells. The 13th season of America's Got Talent, she was a contestant, and I just happened to see this beautiful woman with this incredible voice, and I took notice, and then they say, she's from Houston, and then... They say she's a lesbian, and I'm like, oh my goodness, how wonderful. A little while later, a couple of years later, I actually got to meet Christina, and since then, she has shared her talent and her wonderful personality with Houston and the world in so many ways. So we are delighted to talk to her about something really exciting, which is that she will be here in Houston, in the role of Matron Mama Morton in the 25th anniversary production of Chicago. It's going to be here January 31st through February 12th. Christina, there's just so much we can talk about, but let's go down the path a little bit. You were told time and time again that you can't for one reason or another. And your response was, why can't I? So what are some of the things that you were told that you couldn't do that you proved people wrong?
2: Well, first, I want to say thank you so much for that introduction. It was wonderful. And I appreciate it immensely. Um, I think the biggest thing was when I was younger, like I just... Have always had a really big personality. I've always been really loud, very opinionated, very bold in my choices of what I wear and how I present myself to the world. And from a very young age, I was told that I would need to stop doing that, uh, that I would need to minimize, you know, the word shush was used often. Um, Even speaking, my voice kind of fills a space. I learned really early on that people I guess they don't want you to take up so much space. Like the consensus as a woman is I should be quieter. I'm five foot nine almost. And I've always been this tall. Like I think I've been this tall since I was 10 and a half, 11 years old. And so I've just always taken up a lot of space and it was constantly like minimize, make it smaller, make it quieter. When it came to singing, I've always had a really soulful voice, even when I was a young kid. And you you have to find the place where your key like fits in the lock. And it took me years to find that place where my voice fit in the lock and unlocked the door to me having the opportunity to sing. And when I was younger, it just, it didn't fit in the world I was living in. So a whole lot of no's, a whole lot of, I always say people wanted me to sand down all of my unique edges and the things that people told me were wrong are actually the things now that are my favorite things about myself and the things that have made me more successful as a performer and as a speaker and as a person, because I kept all of those raw unique edges as much as people wanted me to sand them down and get rid of them.
4: What year was that America's got talent?
2: That was 2018. Can you believe that?
5: You look at me. hi Everything's so clean. I'm changing. So by then,
4: you had already been a pride superstar. You have a career as a registered nurse and worked in healthcare, especially in COVID. You came back from much of your theatrical work and worked again because it was so crucial. What got you to venture out again? Because you had this big rejection when you auditioned for World back in the day after doing this rousing audition and having everyone give you an ovation, but you didn't get the part. And it was because you were a person of size. That must have been very hard.
2: You know, that was 1995. I was 19 years old. You know, I always joke and say I'm way fatter than the fat I was then. You know how we always think we're so fat and then we look back and we wish we could be that fat instead of this fat. (laughs) Yeah, it was 1995 and I had, uh, it was spring break and I was uh, away at college and I came home and I thought for the summer, I'm going to get a singing job. I'm going to sing this summer for work. I'm going to make money singing and I had tried a few things to sing even away at school like talent shows and stuff. My confidence wasn't 100% there. And, you know, people can sense that. And I didn't really know exactly what to do with my voice. Uh, It took me a long time to figure out what to do with my voice. Uh, How does she work? She's big. She's heavy. She's loud. She's low. I went and auditioned and they wanted an Aretha Franklin. And I was like, "Okay, I can do this. This works. But then, like I've told the story, you know, they changed their mind and they decided they wanted a thinner female to play this black role or to like have this woman of color role to be more amalgamous and different, be able to portray different people. And some of those people were skinny and I wasn't. Now I tell the story and I feel joy. But for years, I didn't tell the story ever because it was one of the most like, to me, it was embarrassing and it was sad and it was hurtful. And it was this point of raw pain. And it's so funny because the producers for America's Got Talent, they're like asking me about my life. Why am I not a singer? And I'm like, well, everyone said I was too fat. They're like, who's everyone? I was like well, there's this thing that happened when I was 19. And they're like, tell me about it. And I'm telling them about it, thinking they're wanting to get to know me, not thinking I'm going to tell this on national television. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this was this horrible moment. Like when they told me I was too, like he goes, this is what he said. Well, we've decided to put the parts together and we've already bought the costumes for the Whitney Houston looks and you don't fit those looks. You're, you know, you're too big. He wasn't mean. He wasn't ugly. It was just a piece of information. But what I've learned is that what we think poorly of ourselves, like if you think you have you know bad skin or you think that you're too fat or if you think that your hair is ugly, if someone says anything in criticism or in in noting that item on you, you're like, see what I tell you? I'm too fat. So I went to this phone booth there at the park where no one was around and I cried for hours before I called my mom to come pick me up. And I was like, see, I told you, I'm too fat. I'm too fat to sing. And I'm not talented enough. And why do I think that some girl from Pasadena, Texas is talented enough to go and sing and be this whatever that I have in my head. And it was years, I wouldn't sing it anything. I was like, why? What's the point? I'm too fat to sing anyway. And finally, over time, I like sang at church and got a little older. I was sang at a karaoke place for a couple of years, or like a year I sang there, but I had five years had passed. And I was like one of those karaoke MCs, and it was just little stuff. I never would really pursue singing because I thought it was pointless. What really got me to want to sing again was it was Christmas of 2013. And I was visiting my mom with my boys. And I don't know why but I had this vision of my boys growing up, like they were already teenagers. And I realized in a few short years, they were going to move away. And I remember being shocked by this information. <laughs> and then if you're if you're good at your job, they like grow up and move away and become successful. And they're not the the center of your life anymore. And man, I remember being like, what am I going to do? I remember this so clearly because I was like, what am I going to do? And a little voice in my head was like, why don't you try to sing? And I was like, shut up. <laughs> we already gone through this. I was fat then. I'm way fatter now. And it just kept kind of nagging, like, why don't you try to sing? And, you know, one of my things at the time was, you don't have to be famous like you dreamt of when you were a kid. You don't have to be on Broadway. Like, I remember literally saying this to myself. Like you can sing at like community events. Maybe there's like a local theater things like you've done that before where you did a play in the summer. Like, why don't you do that kind of stuff? Maybe that will be your hobby. And I was like, okay, all right. That's kind of cool. That's how all this started. I decided to sing the national anthem. I was like sporting events have people sing the anthem. I emailed some places at the college. I was getting my bachelor's at the time and I was living in Vegas at the time. And I emailed UNLV and I'm like, hey, I sing. Do you need people to sing the anthem at sporting events? They were like, yeah, we do. Can you sing? I was like, kind of. And I sang and they said, okay. And I sang at baseball games. And I actually have a video that I watched just last week of this. And it's okay. I mean, it's not horrible, but it's not great. And I just kept on doing little stuff.
4: And since that time, you've sung the national anthem for the Astros, (laughs) for the Texans, for the Rockets. I mean, who haven't you sung it for?
2: People ask me all the time, how do you make a career in music? How do you, how do you, how do you? And I'm always like, start small. Like, if you want to eat a whale, you can. You just have to take one bite (laughs) at a time. Like, you can do anything if you do it in small increments. I don't think ever I was like, I'm going to be famous and take over the world. I think I was just like, I just want to sing and I want to make sure that my life isn't empty when my boys grow up and leave. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, it's so funny because I said that in 2013 and I started pointing my toes in this direction of having something to keep my life fulfilled. And now, you know, we talk about me being on tour as Matron Mama Morton. My youngest son moved out. Uh, early at the beginning of this year. And my my oldest son is married. He's got children. And my youngest child, he was like, mom, I'm ready to go. And he's like, are you going to be okay? And I was able to say, yes, I will be. Because I have worked hard this past nine years of building a life for me.
4: There's a great lesson for everyone in that. What have been some of the lessons learned on this path?
2: I think the biggest one ever is say yes to yourself. Like, I think we want everyone else to say yes to us. And I think social media is a perfect example of that. I'm going to post a picture. I don't know if I look good, but maybe other people will think I look good. Hopefully they'll like it. And that will make me think I look good. No, no, no. Can't do that. I look good. Everyone should see it. That has to be the energy and that needs to be the energy for everything you do in life. Now, I don't think I, nobody feels this way hundred percent of the time. If they do, they're gross to be around. So I'm not saying be cocky. I'm not saying be filled with yourself. I'm saying like yourself, like the things you do, like have an opinion of you that's positive. I tell myself all the time when people try to talk about being fat or body shaming, I'm like, do you know the things this body has done, fat and all, the patience it's held in its arms, the hands that it's held, the babies that it's carried, the spouses and the best friends and the sisters and the mamas and everyone that I have hugged and insured and shored up and done everything that this this body has done that. And I'm not going to be mad at her. I'm not going to be angry at her and I'm not going to treat her poorly. And I think that same thing about singing. I think that same thing about my appearance. I think that same thing about what I put out into the world. If it's my music, if it's whatever I've created, if it's my clothing that I sew, whatever. I need to like it. And then if I do like it and I want to share it with other people, that's what I'm doing. I think if anyone is thinking about creating anything, Or if anyone's thinking about doing something that they always wanted to do, like if you wanted to paint when you were a kid, but you're like, but I, I'm not so talented. Who cares? Paint, take a class, watch a YouTube video, just do it. Don't say you're going to be Picasso. Just (laughs) do it. Just do it. And then, then this is what happens. When you say yes to yourself, people notice. And then they naturally gravitate to you. And they want to see the thing you're doing. Then they want to say yes to that thing. And then you're shocked and you're on television and Simon Cowell is telling you you should be a singer. So that's what I'm saying. It's little steps. And it's little steps about believing in yourself, believing in what you're doing, believing in your talents. And when you do that, it really, it changes your life.
4: You know, I too am a woman of size, but I don't have your talent. In fact, I would be happy if people just didn't cringe when I sing. So I don't sing. That's not where my talents lie. But I want to touch on what you said about sewing, because you are an amazing clothing designer and seamstress. And you did that in part because it was hard to find clothes that fit you well. So you made them yourself. And that has kind of become your side hustle.
2: What it was It's so funny because I would say that the years it's taken me to learn and accept I'm a singer and that I'm a performer and, and being able to say that with the confidence. I've had to like start that journey with the sewing because you're right. Back in around the same time, actually, 2014, my friend got married and she asked me to be a bridesmaid. I think I was in a very can-do spirit at the time. And I was like, I would love to be a bridesmaid in your wedding because it's one of my best friends. But I can't afford a dress and a flight and a hotel. And she was like, if you can just get something to wear and get a plane ride here, I'll take care of everything else while you're here. Like I'll take care of your hotel, your food, everything. And I was like, are you sure? She's like, yes, I want you here. Like we'll just work it out. And I was like, okay. So I found a super cheap ticket. Okay. Bing. And then I was like, let me go look for a dress. And I went to David's bridal and I went to a bunch of other places and, there was nothing that would fit me. And the things that did fit me were like gross. Like I'm not the mother of the bride, you know, (laughs) like I'm not like, and that's the thing is there's this uh, attitude of if you're fat, you must be old and a mom who's like relegated to the shelf. And then I did find some dresses that were nicer, but they were a billion dollars, like same dress, skinny, 300 bucks, same dress. Fatter, And now as a seamstress, I know it only got, took you like two more yards, honey, calm down. And you're charging me $700. <laughs> right. So I started to make stuff. So I made a couple of dresses, which were fine. I mean, they were pretty on the outside. They looked like crap on the inside. But but on the outside, they looked good. And I was like, okay. And nothing in my head was like, I'm a designer. I just was trying to make clothes that I could look nice in. So that didn't feel like an outsider when I was with other people who could just go buy things off the rack. And what's happened is I thought I was the only person that had this problem or other people who were very heavy like me. And for those of you who haven't seen me, there are two scoops on my ice cream cone. <laughs> so <laughs> So I was like, oh, I'm just trying to keep up with everyone else. And what's happened is, is my sewing and my creativity, it's giving me this freedom to make whatever I want. Like, I'm literally making a music video for When You're Good to Mama, you know, the song.
5: Got a little motto, always sees me through. When you're good to mama, mama's good to you. There's a lot of favors I'm prepared to do You do one for mama, she'll do one for you They say that life is tit for tat
2: And that's the way I live and so I, I was like, I want a flapper inspired dress that's, you know, a size 24, 26, that is off the shoulder, but I wanted to have fringe, but not the whole thing. And I want sequins, but only in lines. I bought the fabric and all the stuff and I'm making it like this. These things don't exist. So now I could just pull it from my brain and I could just make it happen. So it's been the best thing is this freedom. But
4: now people are like, I want to have that.
2: I was like, what? <laughs> you do? You <laughs>
4: do? You You went from trying to find something to fulfill your life after your children left to having a multitude of things. So not only do you have this voice, and I I know you did choir and sang in church and all of that. As many people who have gone on to become famous have done, you have that ability to hold a note and carry a tune. You have the pipes, and I'm in awe of it. Let's go through some of the roles that you've done. You did Motormouth Mabel in Hairspray, and that gave you kind of your signature song, which was your audition for America's Got Talent. You want to talk a little bit about that?
2: This is actually right in the theme of, you know, my mom had gotten breast cancer. I say that casually because she's in remission now and fine, but that happened. And so me and the boys, we moved from Las Vegas and we moved back to Houston. So now we're back in Houston and I'm working as an RN and the boys are in high school and just doing life. And I'm on this idea that I could do community theater, do small singing events. I found out about Art Park Players, which is in Deer Park, and they were doing Hairspray this summer of 2015. I auditioned, and they cast me as Monmouth Maybell. And you're right; I had never I'd seen the movie Hairspray, but I never had like assigned this song. I know where I've been to
5: in my voice. There's a light in the darkness, though the night is black as my skin there's a light burning bright showing me the way but i know where i've been there's a cry
2: but my goodness, when I sang that song the first time I was like, this feels like it was made for me. My voice doesn't feel too low. I'm not trying to hit notes I can't find. Like it was just like made for my style of voice and that felt so good. After so many years of trying to like squish and push my voice into be the shape of other songs, this song and being on stage in a musical, a real musical, you know, like singing songs to tell a story, you know, like I loved it. And so (laughs) doing that show was everything. And then, and then what happened was, is the next year, like you kind of already alluded to, I was in Pride Superstar, which we both have a mutual friend, January. Yes. January, my boo. And Jan and I and I went to college together. So I've known Jan forever. And January was like, hey, they have this competition pride superstar. She had come out and seen me in hairspray and was super supportive of me trying to sing again. And she's like, you should audition. And I was like, no, I'm not. not. They want to have cute little, you know, gay boys that have tight clothes on and show their tummies and stuff. And they're not wanting me to come be in some gay pride you know, idol kind of competition. She was like, "Nah, girl, you gotta do it. You gotta do it. You gotta do it. And so, you know, I have this uh, thing that if I'm want to try to sing it stuff, this is something you can sing at Christina. And so I, I went and auditioned and it was so crazy. I won the competition. <laughs> So the prize from the competition, and this is literally like, think about this summer of 2015. I do this show, and I find this song summer of 2016, I audition randomly for this competition and I win it. The prize was $2,000 at a music studio, Tan Trong. If you know him, he has a studio that he does. That was my prize. So I go to him and I'm like, what should I sing? And this is again, learning yourself. I was there for two days. The first day I tried to sing this song called Spotlight by Jennifer Hudson. In my mind, I should be singing pop music. I live in your Right. This is my whole thing, right? And he's like, This is okay, but is there another song you could sing that maybe you know or feel more confident in? And my sister's like, you know, what about the song from the show? And I'm like, Nobody wants to hear me sing that musical theater song. Look. Look at how ridiculous. (laughs) And so I'm like, sure. So I had spent, let's say I was there a total of three hours. The first hour and a half of studio time over the two days, I try to sing this song over and over and over again. It doesn't work. I sing, I know where I've been. I sang it twice. He was like, you, my gosh, why haven't we been doing this? I'm like, I don't think anyone wants to hear me sing musical theater. So confused.
1: 2016
5: Pride Superstar, Christina Wells, I Know Where I've Been, Take One. There's a light Darkness, though the night is black as my skin. There's a light burning bright, showing
2: that becomes the single that I have that I just, I'm going to have. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to share this with my grandchildren one day. I'll have a recording of me singing. Well, Joey Guerra was a part of pride superstar and he's like, well, Hey, let's put that out there. Like, why don't you share it? And I was like, well, I, okay. So Tom, Tom helps me make a music video, which is just me singing in the studio. Joey releases it and he goes viral. <laughs> <laughs> Now, this sounds so great and easy and connected, like it was so simple and effortless. It wasn't, and there were lots of ups and downs in between. But if you're connecting the dots, America's Got Talent has scouts that are looking for people who have talent or ability but haven't been discovered or haven't made it to the next level. And they saw that video and then ended up emailing me. And so literally, that's how being Motormouth Maybell and deciding to do community theater literally got me onto national television.
4: What was that experience like of going, of being a uh, contestant?
2: It's a lot of work. Like a lot of people don't realize that it's a lot of work. Uh, It's like a job, like a full-time job, in addition to your own like life and responsibilities. Because what you see on TV is these little clip moments, but it takes weeks and months even to build up to those moments. And so... I'm grateful for it because it taught me a ton. It taught me about press. It taught me about interviewing. It taught me about presentation. It it helped me to understand marketing. It helped me to understand like what it's like to be looked at by a whole lot of people. You know, America's Got Talent is in the top five of all, you know, of TV every year. So if the Super Bowl is number one, America's Got Talent is like three and so you know 11 million people watched my my third performance and my my fourth performance 16 million people were watching the show that day and that's like that's a lot of people and so they all have opinions of you and so learning how to cope with that and how to deal with that that's what the last few years have been about like are you really serious do you really want to do this and understanding like if i do I have to believe in my opinion of myself and not everyone else's opinion of me, be it good or bad.
4: So true. Obviously, other people's opinion of you, such as Joey's and Ernie Manous, who did a feature on PBS that I think all of Houston has seen and where we really got to know more about you. Yeah. You have champions among your community, and and certainly January, who is one of my favorite people on the whole planet. And that encouragement and support, I think, probably made all the difference in the world for you. You also have done performances at stages. You were Ursula in The Little Mermaid at a theater under the stars. That's right. an iconic role, as is the role that you're currently doing, what have been some of the highlights?
2: Well, you know, whenever I was 16 years old, you know, I won tickets on the radio to see South Pacific at the Hobby Center. I always thought that that was like a million miles away from me. You know what I mean? Like you sit in the audience and the stage and that opportunity feels so far. So whenever I was cast in, I was first cast as Sylvia in All Shook Up with Tuts, Theater Under the Stars at the Miller Theater. And then the next year I was Sour Kangaroo and Seussical. And literally standing on the stage and being in a show with Tuts was like such a big milestone in my life. But then when I was Ursula and I was at the hobby center, like me standing <laughs> on that stage. And, you know, I say it all the time. So people are like, why do you say that? Because it's it's part of my identity. Like I felt like such a small town girl. I, my race is ambiguous. What are you is what I get asked all the time. I'm half black, half white. I have this low voice and musical theater, you know, is this odd genre. When I was growing up, it wasn't like this cool, popular thing these things that I loved so much now have all become popular (laughs) and I'm so grateful and happy. So to stand on the stage and be like, they didn't paint me purple. They, they had a very multiracial cast and getting to be my full authentic self. And I will tell you, I have a lot of feelings around this. I felt more Christina than I have ever being Ursula. I love to be myself on stage, I love to do my shows, and I love to, like an evening with Christina Wells, I love doing my shows, but being Ursula, and getting to use all the characters inside of me, and all the voices that I used to use to entertain my kids, and all the ways I love to sing and be so dramatic, and it was just a fit just right, and not feel like, oh, that's a lot, Christina. There was no shush when I was being Ursula and it was, it was everything It is everything. And it's really the catalyst, what pushed me to go out and decide I wanted to do a national tour. You've watched me these past few years. I do these shows. I do shows in other States and other cities, but I have my consistent two to three shows. I do a year in Houston and I, what I work always as an RN, that's my thing. Like I'm the nurse by day, singer by night. When I was in Ursula and it got canceled after 11 performances, The Little Mermaid, my heart was broken.
4: Explain uh, why it was canceled.
2: It was canceled because of COVID. The show was so fantastic. We had had a little bit of COVID, like in the crew, but it was in the outer edges and had been cap- encapsulated quickly. And we were fastidious, mask wearing, constant testing, like fastidious, all masked the whole rehearsal. And if you've never belted in a mask, <laughs> It is an experience for us to get all the way 11 shows in. And this is the week of my birthday because my birthday is in December. But yeah, so it was my birthday and it was just, I was uh, Ursula and it was all in the news and everyone was talking about it. And then the show got canceled. And, you know, a lot of times we take those like hard hits and we're like, see, I guess it's not supposed to that. Or, you know, I guess, you know what I mean? Like you put your head down and you go back to your shell and you cry. And I was crying. I did a lot for a number of days. And then I was like, you know what I need? A show that doesn't end.
4: <laughs> How does one go about getting a gig such as being part of a national tour of a Broadway anniversary production?
2: I'm so glad you asked because I love to share this information. I, I feel like these types of opportunities can, be, can feel like they're being gatekept because it's just like magical. Oh, how'd you get on that gig? And they're like, oh, you know, my agent. And I'm just like, what? Okay, cool. Thanks for telling me. I'm going to tell you. So I do have an agent, wonderful agent out of Los Angeles named Firestarter Entertainment, and they're fantastic. The way it works is there's this thing called Actors Access, which is the way that everybody gets these jobs, even on Broadway. These jobs get posted and they're like, look like when everyone started talking about the whiz the whiz is going to be coming out next year the reason everyone knows is because they do a press release and then they start putting audition stuff up on this actor's access you don't have to have an agent in order to have an account on this on this website you just have to have like you know of course pictures and your sizes right like people who are looking for i always joke and call it the big black girl that belts it's like my Joke stereotype title for what I do. <laughs> There's one in every show. We just talked about it. There's an mouth Maybell or sour kangaroo or Becky and waitress. I didn't play in it. Like every show has this woman who comes out. She gives advice. She tells people, child, let me tell you what you should do. Right? She. This is what she. This is what this character does. That is the, the type of character that I play most often. So when people are looking for that, they look it up and there I am. I'm I'm, I'm one of many human beings that has been presenting that has the body type look, can do the age range then nowadays because of covid this is one positive of covid they do auditions online they used to make you go to new york and stand in line outside of this place called pearl which is the audition place in new york if you're listening to this take notes because i'm giving you the secrets so so now you don't got to do that anymore you can submit videos and then i had callbacks on zoom like on zoom so there's a whole story behind this where I decided to do this in December and I'm like, I tell my agent and my agent says to me, she goes, well, then that means you're going to need it. Cause I told her I want to be Ursula or I want to be Motormouth Maybell, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> this is what I want. And she's like, okay, well, that means you're going to have to audition for stuff you don't want. So people will see you and know you're out there for the things you do want. Best advice ever. Okay. So I auditioned for stuff that I didn't really want to be, all right? And if I'm being 100% transparent, Matron Mama Morton was not on my wish-to-be list. Uh, She, at the time, in my mind, I'm like, she's like some sort of pimp, or she's out there shaking her boobs, and you know, that's not what I do. That's not my brand, usually. I like being, you know, the mama figure that's like warm and consoling and sweet and kind. but. Ursula and Sour Kangaroo were the villains, and I kind of liked it <laughs> a lot, actually. I enjoyed it. They have more depth and better songs. <laughs> yeah. Plus, I feel like the christina still kind of shines through. So it's like it, you kind of like this character because if you're like, oh, I like Christina singing and then I'm Ursula, like I had a lot of people reach out and they were like, I was rooting for Ursula and I'm like, but dum boom <laughs> yeah. So I auditioned for Chicago because it was on the list of the pl- things my agent wanted me to audition for. I auditioned for The Wizard of Oz. I auditioned for stuff that I'm like, where am I in this cast list? Fine, I'm singing. So I sang on, did all these auditions and you just do it online. I did this for about seven months and I got a callback, did the zoom callback and even went to New York for the national tour of hairspray drum roll, please down to the last two people, me and one Mm -hmm. other woman. I know. And it's funny because I went in there like guns a blazing because this is it. This is the goal. This was it. I want to be motor Mouth Maybell on the national tour and sang my face off and acted. And I mean, I, I know that I am okay at acting, but it isn't my strongest skill as much as singing is. So I've really had to work on that, but I did what I could do. And I left, they came out and they were like, you know, you did a great job. We'll let you know. I'm like, sweet. I literally flew to New York for the day and flew back. And I don't do that often. They ended up choosing the other lady. I have no ill towards her. That was her role, not mine. My journey was learning something. And one of the things I learned was I need to beef up my audition acting and then I need to work on my acting skills if I want to get to this next level. Started working more with my vocal coach, working with acting, like just let's, practicing more doing more auditions I even got a callback and I did an audition for the national tour of RESPC to the musical which is the Aretha Franklin story and they were looking at me to be Aretha so I'm like okay things are looking better I'm getting better here we go here we go and I auditioned for Chicago and they wanted me to come to the callbacks but I I didn't have the money to fly to New York for the day plus I wasn't super married to the idea of doing the show they did the callbacks without me in New York and they called my agent and said they still wanted me.
4: Wow. Meant to be.
2: Well, let me tell you who was the casting agency was Stuart Whitley and they uh-huh. had seen me for hairspray. So they had seen my work in person. That's when my agent was like, this is what you want to do. And I'm like, but shouldn't I be trying to, and she's like, Christina, listen to me. I listened to her and we did the negotiations and I said, yes. and I." Freaking quit my job, which I usually keep a little bit of nursing work on the side. says so you know, I'd be worried. And I went and flew to, to Pennsylvania to start rehearsals. And my director for this musical, her name is Tanya Nardini. She told me, she goes, because I said, oh, isn't mama going to be like shaking her boobs and acting like, you know, because this is what I had in my head. And she said, absolutely not. She said, mama's a lady. She said, mama's a businesswoman." Mama's smart. And I will tell you, she couldn't have said better words to me because it changed my perception. And I realized this mama can be my mama. She doesn't have to be the mama of a movie or the mama of other shows. This is my mama, just like my Ursula, just like my sour kangaroo. So I approached it that way. And I've worked really hard because these people are so talented. And I've had to really work and get myself to feel like I'm bringing the same level of skill. But now I
5: love it.
4: (laughs) So what has surprised you about being part of the National Tour? And what is it like the grueling schedule and traveling?
2: I worked as surgery prep nurse for years, which means getting up and being at work at 4.45 a.m. Because you had to be on the unit at 5 and then the patients arrive at 5.30 and the patients, are hungry because they can't eat and they're, they're tired and they're overwhelmed and they're nervous. And so you can't be there and be like halfway. So I'm like, good morning. Hi, my name is Christina. I'm going to be your nurse today and just filled with my usual pep and, you know, excitement. And I would work 12, 14, 16, 18 hour shifts. And then go home and kids, and and I did that because, you know, you work 12 hours, it's only 5 p.m. You work 14 hours, it's only 7. You can go home, make dinner, be with your kids, go to the football game, you know, do all the stuff. I'm a single mom. I raised two boys. I always had two, three jobs when I was raising my kids. So I'm going to be honest. I think perception of grueling is subjective. It's very relative. Because the truth is, is that if you look at the schedule, even on days we travel multiple days in a week, Someone else is driving. I'm not driving. No, I you're wanna, kn-
4: you're knitting.
2: I'm literally crocheting. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm taking naps. I'm texting. I'm comfortable. I have my pillows, my blankets. They help me with my luggage. And then when you work, air quotes, you log in or clock in if you want to say, let's say your call time is 5 p.m. and or even 6 p.m. because your show starts at 7 or 8. So I get there, you do sound check, my dressing room, everything has been moved from the last venue to this one for me. I set up my makeup, I put on my makeup, I warm up, and then I go out and I sing. I get to sing, I sing, <laughs> and I get to act on stage for thousands of people. And then At 10.30, they applaud. Yay, congratulations, yay. Then you change clothes and you go outside and all these wonderful strangers want to tell you how much they loved your performance. And all these plus size bodies are there to say they were so excited to see a plus size person on stage. And all these people who have different colors are like so excited to see people of multiple colors on stage. And I get to be the face of that. And then I go back to my hotel and I stay up till two because I'm hyped up. And I, you know, do projects on my computer and make probably more hats and beanies and crochet more stuff. And then I sleep usually till 10 if we're staying in that city or if we have to drive somewhere, I get up earlier and get on the bus and I I love it. And I think that anything can be hard if you view it as hard. And anything can be easy if you view it as easy. I pre plan my foods. I've had to plan for children and life for years. And so just planning for myself feels indulgent. It feels wonderful. It feels easy. I pre-order stuff and have it delivered to hotels before I get there. I buy groceries from Walmart. I moved all my prescriptions to CVS because it's everywhere in the United States. I don't know. You just make plans. You make sure to have enough water. You sleep. I don't go out. I will say I do not drink alcohol. I don't do any party stuff. And I don't attend places where there's a lot of volume because I am managing my voice and making sure that I'm giving a consistent performance every day. I do have like lines and boundaries, but I have a wonderful time and I love it.
4: You will get to see Christina Wells in the role of matron Mama Morton in the 25th anniversary of Chicago in Houston, January 31st through February 12th. That's at The Hobby. Is that correct?
2: That's right. Hobby Center.
4: And there you are again at The Hobby. It's been a joy speaking with you, Christina. I love you so much. And I'm just going to close off by saying this. She's here to entertain and to inspire the world with her powerhouse voice and her heartfelt message of love and hope. Christina Wells, thank you.
5: There's a light in the darkness Though the night is black as my skin There's a light burning bright Showing me the way But I know where I've been There's a cry In the distance It's a voice that comes from deep within. There's a cry asking why. I pray the answers up ahead. Cause I know where I've been. There's a Lost so many
0: has been Queer Voices which is now a home produced podcast and available from several podcasting sources check our webpage queervoices.org for more information Queer Voices executive producer is Brian Lavinka. Andrew Edmondson and Deborah Moncrief Bell are frequent contributors. The news wrap segment is part of another podcast called This Way Out which is produced in Los Angeles. Some of the material in this program has been edited to improve clarity and runtime. This program does not endorse any political views or animal species. Views, opinions, and endorsements are those of the participants and the organizations they represent. In case of death, please discontinue use and discard remaining product. For Queer Voices, I'm Glenn Holt.